Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The How's Your Father podcast with Johnny Cochran. And now, here's Johnny. Hello and welcome to another episode of the How's Your Father podcast. Um, you have been spoiled in the past, as I've mentioned before, with the amazing guests that we've had on the pod. And this week, we're really excited because it's the first lady who has joined us on the How's Your Father podcast. Um, she's absolutely sensational. You probably know her already. She's amazing. She is a comedian, a writer, a screenwriter. Um, and host of the massively famous and widely lauded Guilty Feminist podcast. Guys, it's Deborah Francis White. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Johnny. Oh, no, it, it is an absolute pleasure that you've um, accepted the invitation. I, I, am, I am aware because... Um, previous guests have, uh, you know, brought it to my attention that I introduced someone and say, give it up for this person. And it's just us talking. So it is me clapping. Uh, but there you go. I hope that was a warm enough welcome for you. It was. It was a, a very warm lockdown welcome, given there's not much, not much applause in lockdown. Uh, unless I do a small performance of Juliet, uh, the balcony scene at five to eight on a Thursday night, uh, then in which case then accolades. Yeah, you just start you know, throwing throwing roses off your balcony, yeah, as the as the claps rain through. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, uh, for those that might be listening to this and don't know, um, you were kind enough to invite me onto the Guilty Feminist podcast um, to discuss broadly, as a subject matter, feminism and fatherhood. And I found it so interesting. It really kind of struck a chord with myself, but also people still talk to me about it now. And I just thought, what a great subject to kind of talk more broadly about on the How's Your Father podcast. Um, so why don't I start by saying, because um, you made you made a beautiful point on The Guilty Firm, and if you haven't listened to it yet, absolutely listen to it, and all of the episodes for that matter. But you made a point where you said that you felt that fathers, uh, certainly in the past, probably had a bit of a an easier role in the setup that, they would often, you know, be the breadwinner and coming home from work and then getting to just be the fun person while the mum who's been dealing with the kid all day and is obviously very stressed out, you know, and finding it difficult, can't always be the smiley, joyful parent. Um, so I mean, to be, fair, to, to be fair, Johnny, I did do that in the context of stand-up comedy, which is a rather blunt and hyperbolic tool uh, <laughs> uh it was like a routine about i'd love to be um i don't really want to be a mum but i'd love to be a dad and it's because uh i what i what i noticed once when i was doing a stand-up show and i had a bit about whose mum can irritate them in inside weeks if you had to live with your mum for weeks and people everyone virtually would go yeah days yeah loads of people yeah hours some people go yeah minutes yes my mother can irritate me in minutes and then I'd say about your dad and the, the results would be very different and then I'd say well what did your what did your mum teach you and it was like literally everything from holding your head up 
to how to use the loo. And people would say, oh, my dad taught me to blow bubbles or ride a bicycle. And so I had a whole kind of rant about that. Now, of course, that's a that's become uh, much more blurred. I'm sure previous generations, there are always exceptions to that. That was only a trend. It wasn't an absolute. Uh, but there have in recent years, of course, uh, the gender roles have blended and the parent roles have blended and uh, fathers are much, much better at changing nappies and getting up in the night, as I'm sure you are, Johnny. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, know that. Learn that the hard way. <laughs> hands hands well, on the whole time. Uh, I was but, just, I'm, uh, I'm sitting there, Deb, I'm going, hold up, I'm only meant to be blowing, teaching him to blow bubbles and ride bikes. I'm not meant yeah, to be doing this stuff. That's, that's what I signed on for. I signed on for <laughs> bubble blowing. Uh, but it's true that, you know, you know, certainly, uh, you know, in in metropolitan pockets of the world now, uh, those gender roles have blurred. But, I mean, if you look around the world, historically and geographically, most likely uh, mothers do a great deal more of the boring side of parenting. And often, um, again, it's only a trend, dads get more of the fun stuff. And that has to do with breadwinning and uh, traditional gender roles there and um, and all sorts. But I think all sorts of historical power structures. But if you look on the savannah before we started farming, when we were um, hunters and gatherers and we were more nomadic, um, pet, pet childcare is, is shared. And we know that because there are still some tribes that survive today that are nomadic who are still hunters and gatherers and childcare is 50-50. There's no expectation that the woman will take care of the children. Uh, whoever, whoever is available is taking care of the children because both men and women spend about 40 hours a week hunting and gathering. And so, uh, and, and it doesn't always fall across, across gender lines that women gather and men hunt either. Um, but, that would be a trend, in which case um, some children might go with the gatherer, some children might go with the hunter, depending on their age um, and their gender and that kind of thing. And uh, there is no expectation outside of that, that the child will go to the mother or the father. The child could go to either parent or, in fact, anyone else in the tribe who seems to have the resources or the know-how that the child needs. And this idea of the nuclear family um, as there are two, two, one or two people from whom the child gets everything is very, very new. Uh, sure. Even if you look at Victorian households, everybody lived together. And even if you know, people were living in one room, everybody lived together. There were lots of children. The older children took care of the younger children. There were aunties and grannies and grandfathers and uncles yep. and brothers-in-law. And, and the idea that... That um that a, that a, that a, that two parents would sequester themselves away, entirely alone with young people who were very very demanding with children babies and children that were very demanding is very new, and I'm not sure it's it's very healthy or very helpful. I mean it is what we've got, but I don't it's, think it's what how we've evolved. It's a it's a capitalist structure really, isn't it? It's one that makes uh, families much easier to control and. Um, uh, you know, buy into the system if it's right. Families locked away, living on your own, but one person goes to work, the other's just raising the next generation of their class. Um, that that kind of setup, rather than the kind of communal parenting, like you say, um, you know, more father reaches of the community getting involved in the uh, rearing of the children. 
in in previous or different um, uh, kind of social setups in different cultures and whatnot. So, uh, in terms of obviously uh, explaining that things have developed and moved on, um, what would you say uh, is the, the most kind of pressing thing that you feel that modern fathers need to take into parenting now when it comes to being aware of you know um progressive movements like the feminist movement you know and 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 various different things in this day and age i would say engaging and listening i think there has been uh something projected onto men that they're going to be a bit checked out that their daughters are going to have questions about their bodies and there'll be a sort of uh, a jokey stereotype that the man would be like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I've got no idea about that. Uh, That the children will have emotional problems and it'll be go to your mother. That when you move out of home and you phone home, there was a whole advertising campaign done, I think, uh, by one of the television, uh, by one of the telephone companies that you'd ring home and from uni and your dad would say, I'll just get your mother. And it was the tele- the telephone campaign was to try and break that and say, actually have a chat uh, with your daughter or your son who's away at college or perhaps moved away to get their first job because you should bond with them. I mean, really, so that you can pay British Telecom more money. I think that was the that was the real reason for the advertising campaign. I don't think it was really about, about uh, deep family bonding. But... That is something I think has been projected on men, that real men don't talk about their feelings and real men don't talk about their children's feelings. And they're just a bit checked out. So they'd really rather be talking about sport and cars or something else to someone else. They'd really rather be down the pub. And so there's a disconnect, an emotional disconnect or a disengagement from their children. And this is not something that I think all fathers do by any means. But I think it is a societal stereotype. It's something that we we project onto fathers. It's something that is imposed on fathers. And there can be a sort of, oh, well, you're not a real man if you're sitting, you know, plaiting your daughter's hair. Uh, or, or increasingly, isn't that adorable? So there are videos that go around every now and again about a man who's doing his daughter's hair or a man who's on stage helping his daughter get through her ballet routine because she's upset. And there's this sort of overwhelming movement of ovaries of people going, oh, my God, isn't he amazing? Oh, my God, isn't that adorable? Oh, my God, oh, my God. But I've never seen anyone share a picture of a mother plaiting her daughter's hair. It's just not no. a thing. It's just not a no. thing. People would be like, yeah, what's what's the twist? Where's the where's the gag here? Where's the Where's the adorable part? Because mothers do their daughter's hair, that's just how it goes. Mothers do their son's hair, that's just how it goes. So a father, to this day, to 2020, a father nurturing his child, a father being emotionally connected to his child, a father dancing with his child, uh, caring for his child in in some kind of um, uh, really caring, uh, a father caring for his child in some kind of uh, tactile way, those yep. things are all seen as adorable and they go viral because they, they're seen to be exceptional. Sure. It's not normal for a father to do his daughter's hair. And that's why uh, we celebrate it. 
And that's strange in 2020, don't you think, Johnny? It, it is. I mean, it's interesting that you say it as well. Do you think that, you know, obviously, again, everyone's individual and there's no hard absolutes with, you know, gender roles and whatnot and, and emotional responses. But when you mentioned about... Um, you know, uh, that reaction to a, a really tapped in father, you know, being emotional and caring and um, that response being like, oh, my ovaries are jangling. You know, it's something that will often come from women in the sense that the man is breaking the rules. You you, you rarely get a guy being like, oh, my balls are jangling because I've seen a woman, <laughs> a woman uh, plait her daughter's hair, you know, like it's... it's. But that's about power structures. That's about what we what we know is to be normal. So the sure. expectation on the woman, the negative uh, the negative connotation for the woman there is, yeah, you should be doing that. And why why would why would that be exceptional? A man's not going to go, "Oh my god, look at that hot young woman and she's even plaiting her niece's hair. She's going to make a great mom." There is an expectation that women are nurturers. And so if you are not a nurturer, you do not want children, you're seen as a monster sometimes. Um, we did an episode of the Guilty Feminist podcast years ago when the, when the Guilty Feminist first started. We hadn't been going very long. We did an episode at the Edinburgh Festival and Susan Kalman was the guest. And we asked her what she would like to talk about because often we get the topic from the guest. Sure. And Susan's a brilliant comedian. Um, She's great. She and she said, she said, I would like to talk about not wanting children, not not having them, um, just not the fact that I don't want them. I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me because I didn't have any children. I love children, but I didn't want any of my own. And that feels sometimes socially unacceptable. Um, we said, oh, that's a great topic for feminism. And up we went. And uh, Sophie Hagen was still co-hosting it at that point. And all three of us talked about not having children. And Susan did a very, very funny riff. Um, that It wasn't done a stand-up, but it was like material about how her... Um, it was like a routine, and it was about how she loves her niece, um, but, you know, her niece wants to play imaginary post offices, and, and Susan was like, can we not just sit quietly and watch Judge Judy? I don't want to pretend I'm in a post office. And, you know, we did a really... We, she, she was very funny about it. You can listen to it. It's, she was... She was uh, she did the funniest rant. She got really, really, really ranty about how how often small children, when they're asking you to play those games, are very, very boring. And <laughs> um, But she really stressed how much she loved her niece when she said this. She said, there just are times when it's boring. And I said I'd tried to have children and done fertility treatment and it hadn't happened for me. And I'd got to that point where I thought I could push on, you know, pumping all those hormones into my body and getting more and more upset about this for the rest of my life. Or I could just say, do you know what? I'm not going to have kids and I'm going to embrace what I do have, which is the fact that I can go off to New York and do the guilty feminist and do all these things that people who don't, who do have children say they wish they could do. Sure. And so I said, I'd got to that point, but I, I was, exp I was pretty clear uh, that I had had fertility treatment and had not been able to have children. And for a while that had been difficult. Um, but then I talked about, I think my nephews and nieces and how much I loved them. And, and Sophie said, um, and she was still in her 20s, and she said, I don't think I want children, but I don't know. She said, you know, I might hit 32 and it happens to people, they suddenly do want children. But at the yeah. moment, I don't want children. But she talked about 
um, going, uh, but she talked about working for a nursery for very small children and how she would sometimes favour the children um, discreetly who she felt were on the outside, you know, the, the ones that were like, uh, get, might get bullied or uh, sure. were the coolest kids and how she, how much she loved those children who perhaps weren't accepted by the mainstream and she related to them and that kind of thing. So all of us talked about loving children and I said I'd tried to have kids and Sophie said she might yet still want to have kids down the line and we got the most extraordinary emails and messages from people saying, how dare you talk about children like that? How dare you say my children are boring? Um, You know, you're undermining children. That's not feminism. And really, it was a really overblown response. And you could listen to the episode. None of us say we don't like children. Um, And I have heard, the interesting thing is, I have heard mothers say everything we said everything. And I feel if we were three mothers sitting around going, oh my God, if I have to play one more game for imaginary post offices, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm hitting the Chardonnay at four o'clock lately because this imaginary <laughs> post office situation is really doing my head in. People would go, oh, she's so relatable. Oh, I also hate uh, imaginary post offices. And I also drink say wine at all, <laughs> Yeah. People say all the time that other people's children are boring or, um, Mothers say that all the time, that they can't bear other people's children or that it's it's very dull when the children are young. And it is very dull when the children are young sometimes. I'm sorry, but it just is. I used yeah. to be a nanny. And when they're toddlers and they want to play the same game again and again and again, which is important for their development, and you do it and you love them, but it is boring. And I have heard mothers say that endlessly and nobody has a go at them. Honestly, we were seen like monsters. And I was like, you know, I always get a certain amount of, messages from any episode of someone said something that doesn't seem inclusive to somebody and sometimes we go oh actually that's fair and sometimes I go look stand-up comedy is a blunt tool and you know um I don't want to cut the stand-up component and you know I invited that person on that's what they did and I don't want to be censoring or asking people to you know to vet their stand-up before they come on or anything like that so you know we get a certain amount of of complaints understandably uh, because we've got a very big audience from any episode but that episode, it was honestly torrential. And I think that's mm. the, that for me is society imposing that we three women have to be nurturing, that we three women have to be caring. And we're allowed not to have children, but we should have wanted them. That we, yeah. And we should have gone after that and prioritised that. And saying you don't want children is somehow an indictment on other mothers. But I think three men sitting there saying, Oh God, I just—I don't find children interesting at all, and I—I—I I, I don't know what to do with a child. What? What if I had a child? What would I even do with it? Would not be seen as extraordinary at all, and I don't think they'd get any any complaints at all, because Definitely there's a, a projection on you that you're meant to care about uh, sport, and uh, you're meant to care about maybe politics. You're meant to care about breadwinning. To, they're but not mutually no exclusive. You, Johnny, that you need to be nurturing. Just for our audience, though, Deb, they're not mutually exclusive. I love the football, I love the pub, and I love my son. And if I can combine the three in a safe manner, you know what I mean, then I'll, I will do so. Uh, definitely try to. Of course, yeah. But also, children are not the only thing mothers care about either. Mothers yeah. care about... Some mothers love the pub and love football. Some mothers love 
the theatre and, you know, going skydiving. Like, we all love other things that aren't children. But, of course, they're not mutually exclusive. What kind of person would you be if you didn't love anything until you had kids? <laughs> exactly. That would be a different setup entirely. Um, is it just um, to put a, a couple of points on what you've just said as well. So... Um, just initially, I uh, when you were saying you were getting a lot of complaints, were these all from women as well? Kind of complaints. Yes. They so they are the arbiters of um, in their minds of femininity. Like so, if you're not being feminist enough, they are calling you out on it. Because to put it in the uh, bloke scenario, the free bloke saying it, um, the idea of free to, to kind of really spell it out, the idea of free blokes saying they didn't want kids and then other blokes saying why don't you want kids it's would that would that would jar and that is not the expectation for sure no uh, and it's i mean i don't know whether our audience would have such a strong response now maybe our audience has evolved too but also you know to be fair maybe people were feeling a bit sensitive if you if you're at home with a child and you're tuning into this podcast cuz that's a conduit, you know, you've got a brand new baby and this is your conduit to other women talking intelligently about feminism and things in an entertaining way. You might suddenly feel excluded, like they're laughing about you and your kids. So it could be absolutely a response that I understand. Uh, but you're right, I really don't think three men saying they didn't... The thing is, we weren't even saying that. Yeah, Susan yeah. was saying she didn't want children, but Susan's allowed not to want children. Yeah. Um, I don't want children anymore. If you told me now that I was pregnant, I'd be like, oh, no, I've planned my life differently now. And I, I don't want children now. And I did I did want children then. Um, and, you know, Sophie was saying, I might still, who knows, I don't feel I do now, but that's perfectly normal in your 20s to think you don't want children and think... You know, but she wasn't saying never, 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 you know. But even if she had been saying never, 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 that's okay. Fewer children is useful for the environment, to be honest. When we talk about feminism uh, as a broad subject and all of the kind of mechanisms in place to uphold, like patriarchy, when you think about the generation of fathers now, they have been raised by their fathers, as you were raised by your father, you know, or presuming, you know, that most people have, an, have a memory of fatherhood from the way that they were raised. So when you're trying to kind of break that mould from your own uh, experience of your own father, it can be difficult. I talked on a previous episode to Doc Brown about raising his children, and one of the things we kind of stumbled upon was the issue of raising daughters and how that mm. in a in a father's mind might be the agent for, oh, I might actually have to question some of my beliefs here because I don't value women in this way, but my daughter's different. You know, is that is that something that you think uh, is a kind of widespread mentality within men that they don't really engage oh. within feminism until... Um, you know, they've they've got a vested interest in having a daughter or is it just something that maybe would come anyway due to maturity? I find it fascinating, especially when men in Hollywood say, uh, I've got daughters now. Until until I invented a woman, I didn't think women were really people <laughs> and treated them shoddily like they were just sexual objects 
and add obstacles to my career. But now, you know, now I've made a woman myself. I've made a female one. I'm like, do you know what? This one is an exception to the rule because <laughs> she has come from my stable. Is it possible that others are also exceptions to the rule because they've also come out of a man stable? It's like when they work out that every every girl is half man, it's okay. It's like, oh, they are people. Most people in the world are the product of a man and a woman. Of course, if we factor in minority genders and other ways of having children, that isn't the case. But most people are, are half man and half woman, uh, no matter our gender and no matter whether our assigned gender at birth reflects our actual gender. Most of us have been made by uh, the sperm of a man in the uterus of a woman. Um, that's not the only experience, but it is the predominant experience. And I think a lot of men uh, then want to say, oh, now I've worked out a girl is half man, she's human. And, and, and that is immediately a problem because it implies ownership. And we just don't want to be valued that way. I don't want to be valued because I'm owned by a man. I find That's... it really extraordinary when men say that. I mean, I suppose it's better than them never realising it, but I don't feel it is a full realisation when they say it. I don't feel it's a full realisation. I feel it's an ownership piece rather than a... Uh, an awakening that women are people. Yeah, I think it will often come down to those. And I've, you know, I've met a lot of guys and speak to a lot of guys who have that mentality of they are, they think about women in a certain way, apart from my mum and my daughter. Yeah, my mum and my daughter mm. are exceptions to the wall. And that often comes from a place of kind of distrust and um, various different things, actually, that have fostered their attitudes. But with regards to men and their role in raising children, and particularly daughters in that respect, what would you say is some of the least helpful traits that you've seen fathers um, imposing on raising daughters? I suppose it's the same as that ownership piece, that, oh, my little princess will be protected, my little princess won't be dating any boys, They'll, I'll beat them off with a stick at the door or, you know, that kind of thing. And it's it's still about ownership. Um, so at, at any point when the dialogue around a girl child or a teenage girl becomes uh, boyfriends aren't going to get any closer than the front door, they'd better, they'd better respect her or they'll have me to answer for it generally isn't coming out of a place where you're encouraging a girl to find her own autonomy. It's basically a battle between the father and the boyfriend for ownership yeah. over the girl's body. And actually what, what, what great dads do is encourage that girl to feel her body is hers and her feelings are hers and encourage her to make good decisions about her own body not because she's frightened of her dad and not because she's trying to please her boyfriend. And that's the problem with that is if you're raised to please your dad, where it comes to matters of, uh, of your own body and what you do, your conduct, you will be absolutely prime trained to please a boyfriend. Yeah. Cause that's, that's how you get approval is pleasing somebody. So, the activities that the father in question does not wish his daughter to engage in are far more likely 
if he encourages her to respect her own body and listen to her own body and and engage in a way that uh, that that is really true to herself, she is far less likely to engage in sexual practices before she's ready or in a way that's unsafe. Um, somebody said the other day uh, that their mother, I saw it on Twitter, I think, and I don't know who it was or I'd quote them, but that's, they said that their mother said, didn't say, wait till you're married to have sex and didn't even say, wait, wait till you're in love. She said, don't have sex with any man who doesn't respect you. And to look for signs of respect. And I think that's actually a great piece of advice. Um, mm. And I would say, you know, listen, listen to your own body. What does your body want? And then can you safely engage in that, but only with someone who is showing you respect and kindness? Because pleasing parents, being raised to please your dad and make him proud is a training ground for that's that's how I have to get love and validation from this guy who I fancy then. I have to mm. I have to please him. I have to make sure he approves of me. And how's he going to approve of me? You know, perhaps by asking you to do things that you're not ready to do. It's absolutely fascinating. I was quite absorbed to what you were saying there. There's just a couple of points I kind of want to come back on. In the, first of all, I think that's the aspect that so many men fall into the trap of of the only way that they can parent is through being enacting that role of the protector. So I can't comfort my daughter when she's feeling upset, but I can knock her boyfriend out if he if he starts trying to get racy. And and also, you mm. know, one of the things that always got got me about this whole scenario that so many dads do of oh boys better stay away. It's this idea that oh yeah, boys better stay away because I remember what I was like at that age as a boy so it's like you yeah. understand that there's a problem <laughs> yeah I, I, I wouldn't want her getting with me at that age so rather than uh kind of try, helping to try and eradicate the issue it's just oh this is the way things are and i'll just keep her away from me who is bad and then the next generation are bad and and so on the other point with regards to women always be primed to um please their parents so do, do you think like I, I want to kind of pry into the kind of issue the issue around sex as well because obviously that's how these kids are made uh largely and um basically the whole idea being that men when in terms of planned parenthood at least they seem to be getting into a situation where they've found a partner that they hopefully love and respect enough to have kids with whereas before there was that idea that you may be having sex in a way where respect isn't always there um it's more it can be more casual and it can be more um far more transient you know rather than uh, potentially their you know loved up lifelong partners who they might be having kids with or planning to i would um, still so say you, think- you want to be having sex with someone who respects you though i think I think someone who's not going to show you basic respect before, during or after is not going to make you feel great. And I think they don't have to love you. They don't have to promise you anything. They don't have to, it doesn't have to be romantic. Of course, it can be a one night stand or a a one hour stand in a field at Glastonbury. But if they're not going to show you respect, 
I would say, and they may not, you may not know till afterwards, but that's going to make you feel bad. And I think so if you're giving advice to teenagers or young people who still need parental advice, I don't think that's a bad way of going. You know, look, if you're 35 and you're incredibly horny and you think, do you know what, this guy's an absolute douche, but I really fancy him right now. And you go for it, knowing that you're protected then and, and because you're going, I know, I know he's going to be disrespectful, and I'm okay with it. I'll t- I'll take the hit. Um, yep. Then you can make your own decisions. But saying to a 16 year old, do they respect you? Not do they love you? I think it's a great piece of advice. I think it is as well. I think it's a great bit of advice to say to people, go with anyone who respects you. That that's pretty much for anything in life, you know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We've kind of acknowledged that men have come a long way with regards to um, engaging with the cause of feminism, but um, there are still certain boundaries that seem like a lot of men can't seem to get their head around. Like, yeah, you know, oh, I think men, sh- women should have equal pay, but you know what? Oh, is is a darling out on a dance floor kind of thing. And then that's the attitudes that they're taking into raising children. So what would you say still seem to be the biggest obstacles that in terms of getting men to really um, tune in on on mass with feminism? And I think the way to get men to tune into feminism is to create uh, a welcoming bridge building space. And a lot of feminists would disagree with that and say, look, feminism isn't here to cater to the worst excesses of toxic masculinity but I I myself am a bridge builder and I the thing is with the guilty feminist it it is a space that many men have said that they've learned to come to feminism because we're having fun and it's a sort of it's a it's a it's an entertaining bridge to cross to pick up on some of the more important points and take them on board and laughter makes your armor come off um, now, that's not to say every feminist space has to be a space that accommodates men and makes men feel comfortable. Of course not. Uh, that's, feminism is not here to make men feel comfortable. And uh, so I, you know, uh, but I I do appreciate myself as a white woman, spaces like Two Dope Queens, where I can learn about some of the ways that white people are um entitled and uh some of some of the worst excesses of uh caucasian behavior within lib even within sort of liberal liberal pockets where 
you might think you're being an ally, but you're not. Sure. And it's useful to listen to that, you know. And sometimes a man will write in and say, um, you need to make the space more friendly to men, the guilty feminist space more friendly to men. And I'm like, to me, that would be like me writing to two dope queens and going, I know you're both African-American women, but is there any chance you could make the space a bit whiter because I feel more comfortable? <laughs> I would never do that. The whole point is it's, it's a space that's exclusively there for people of colour and white people are absolutely invited to listen, but you might hear things about yourself and your behaviours that you might want to hear and you should hear. So I find listening openly and not immediately defending to commentators and writers like Ready and Lodge, um, to Two Joke Queens, uh, to the Good Immigrant uh, anthologies as uh, started by Nikesh Shukla. It's very useful. It's really useful if you want to be a better ally because those those things are pieces of art and they're pieces of art to be engaged with and there's there are some things there that are entertaining, there are some things that, that are revealing, there are some things there that are educational, but it's a place a curated space. It's not just a big row on Twitter where people are piling on. It's a curated space. And I would say, if you're a man who wants to understand more what it might be like to walk in uh, the shoes of a woman or or somebody of a minority gender, non-binary person through this world, then seek out art made by women. Seek out feminist art, but seek out just female authors shows uh, television shows that are written by women watch dairy girls it doesn't have to be a great big feminist treatise it can be a really funny show like dairy girls where nearly all the protagonists are young women where the show was written by a woman and just sit in that space sit in somebody else's space and look out through their eyes i often think hollywood's done us a great disservice because it's been a hundred years of looking through the same pair of eyes and rarely do we get to look through the eyes of someone who isn't a white straight man in a, in a Hollywood film. That's changing a bit now, but it's still, it's still likely to be a niche film. If the hero is a woman, it's probably likely to be a woman's film. Um, if it's a, if the hero is black, it's likely to be a black person's film, but market it that way. And Oh, I've always felt that with regards to like, you know, I'm, I'm the, um, uh, the child of uh, an interracial couple. And yet you look at Hollywood and it's like, you know, if ever there's an interracial couple, it has to be the focus of the film. It can't just yeah. be, you know, like it has to be a, hey, look, it's some Romeo and Juliet of black family, white family. No, why can't they just be together? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And not making a big deal of it. A friend of mine who's in... Uh a mixed race family said when Grey's Anatomy came on, that was huge for her because she'd just never seen a depiction of a mixed race couple in mainstream TV before. And, you know, you just think how long this has gone on and that's still not normal. And it's still not, it's still made a big deal of. It's so bang on, Deb, what you're saying. Um, and, and I can speak firsthand from this. And I've seen some of those, you know, uh, kind of right wing, um, um, the right wing commentary saying, "Oh, you're trying to force it down people's throats," and it's like, why? Like, guess what? We exist, like, hundred percent. Just on the note of fatherhood, when you get some of the men that are in, trying to engage with, like, the guilty feminist and writing into you saying, "Make it more accessible," do you find that 
fatherhood or then becoming fathers is often the agent that makes them want to engage in feminism then is that something that you've visibly seen i think a lot of the men who listen to the guilty feminist are probably fathers if i'm honest i love it when fathers bring their daughters to the show when we did the royal abbott hall there was a man in the front row who brought his 13 year old daughter as her birthday present and i found that really moving but again i wouldn't find it as moving if a woman had brought her 13 year old daughter to the guilty feminist the the amount of love and unnecessary praise men get for picking up their own child who they themselves have sighed look at him isn't he a good father at the barbecue <laughs> look he's carrying his baby around i mean it is extraordinary but we all the, the bar is very low for men sometimes it's like he's picked her up with his arms hiled his own child aloft. <laughs> look he's changing her nappy oh my god he's such a good father and we give women no praise for exactly the same thing. In fact, we judge women because is she holding that child wrongly? Is she, she, she supporting the head well enough? She's changed that child only, only once in the last six hours, as far as I can see. I haven't noticed her changing the child before now. The child should be changed every three hours. <laughs> we're so judgy of women when it comes to raising their children that they're not doing it right. And we're so delighted to see any hands-on parenting of men at all uh, that we shower them with praise. But that is, that's the, that's the, the history of the world kicking in. I mean, that's, I also feel very moved when a man brings his daughter to my show. I do. I think well done him extra brownie points more than I would feel about a woman because it's an emotional response. I try and retrain myself to go, no, that's normal. He's a parent. He brought this child into a, into the world. She now wants to do this and he's encouraging her. That is a good and normal standard thing. He should be doing that. Why are you giving him a special medal? But, We've all been trained in the same world. And, and also, look, men are, men are expected to get out into the front lines and not cry and bring home the bacon. And, you know, it's not the way wars are done anymore because of m missiles and drones and things. But if it comes to a trenches war, men are expected to get in the trench and risk their life and women aren't. You know, there are all sorts of privileges that women have that men don't have. Um, but there are a lot of power structures that support um, that support masculinity. And the more we can all assess where those gaps in fairness sit and we ask ourselves how we can close them, the better the world will be. Definitely. I think that's a great, great point. So, Deb, thanks so much for coming on. But before you go, we have got a uh, feature on the show, which is where you basically just give one bit of advice. I know the way the pod is, you've kind of been giving forward different bits of uh, advice and opinion throughout. But this is a little feature that, ironically, we call Get Your Tips Out for the Dads. OK, so... Uh, nice. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, uh, we have uh, reclaimed that. Excellent. Well done. Well done on that kind of bit of recycling. Very good for the environment. <laughs> I'm pleased. Upcycling, I'd call that. Cool. Uh, so in terms of getting your tips out for the dads, uh, is there, if there was one bit of advice that you could give fathers out there, what would it be? Listen to your child and get to know who they are because who you assume they're going to be is very likely different from who they really are. And especially as more children now are, for example, to name just one thing, um, identifying as non-binary, Quite this happened to quite a few friends of mine. Their teenager has said, I just don't think I'm a girl and I also don't feel like a boy. 
and they just don't want those binary labels imposed upon them. Well, you can't know that unless you know them, unless they're free throughout their childhood to tell you how they feel about things and who they really are. And letting them explore who they are. So one of my friends whose uh, child is non-binary said uh, that they're also asexual, but they're only 15. And she said, I think they might go to university or get their first job and move out of home or whatever. And, uh, and they might discover they're actually transmasculine and they might evolve that way, but they might not, or they might transition back. And those things are all fine with that generation. Like, they don't feel they have to nail their colours to the mast and say, this is what I am and this is what I am forever. Um, they are asexual now, but they may go to university and discover they're very sexual. They may end up being polyamorous. Like, you know, it, 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 the idea that you have to say who you are at 15 or 18 and then you're stuck with it is a real anathema to that generation. They're happy to evolve. And the thing is, when I was 16, I was a virginal Jehovah's Witness who liked to knock on doors and tell people about Jehovah. I'm not that person anymore. I have evolved and changed in so many different ways that I'm an unrecognizable person. And the ability to evolve is the greatest thing that you can have, the ability to change. I'm finding new things out about myself now. Like I've started doing dancing lessons in lockdown and I love it. <laughs> and I'm like, why, why have I not been a dancer all these years? Like, it's changing my body. It's changing how I feel in my body. It's changing how my body moves. It's, it's changing how confident I feel to move. It's going to totally change how I move on the stage. And I'm so excited about it. Why, why haven't I been doing this all along? But the thing is, I haven't been because that wasn't the right time. This is the right time for this. So finding out new things about yourself and what you like to do and what your body likes to do and what your, who you are sexually, who you are emotionally who you are as an activist or a, a, you know someone who has a voice in the world it's a lifelong situation so boxing your child down at five and imposing upon them anything from a color scheme to a, a deep gender imposition to uh you know you've always been like this you've always been a tomboy or you've you've always you know you liked bugs when you were five or whatever you know be open to who that person changes into and be curious as to who your child is. Be constantly curious as they evolve and unfold and change towards and away from things. Be excited to be on that journey with them and be curious. It's, it's a real desire to impose upon them so you can control them because you want to keep them safe. And that's completely understandable. It's coming from a good place. But the more that you can keep them safe while letting them grow and evolve and be who they who they are today, and that may be different from who they are tomorrow, uh, the more wonderful your relationship will be with them and the more a genuine safe haven you'll be. You will be their lighthouse if you allow that. And they will come to you and say, actually, I think I've got a terrible drug problem when they're 16. Uh, because they all? trust you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. As I said, I was a Jehovah's Witness. My, my, oh, you missed my the only boat. Drug was Jehovah. the drugs at that point. Yeah, they were all the rage. I mean, I really did. You, I've regretted it ever since. I'm a, I mean, I don't regret not doing drugs at 16, but I regret having more fun. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, the, I, I can only thank you for coming on the podcast. Some of the things you've said today have been absolutely spot on and I know the dads and, and non-dads that are listening out there uh, will have 
found it very, very useful and insightful. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, if you haven't checked out already the Guilty Feminist podcast, check it out. It's hilarious. It's brilliant. Loads more of Deb being wicked. So make sure you're checking it out. And there is even an episode with myself on it around fatherhood. It's very good. Listen to Johnny Zep. On the next How's Your Father podcast. DJ Spoonie, a DJ, a presenter, sports fanatic and father of two daughters. Mate, you're going to be a dad in a minute. Do you not realise this is the single most important thing that's going to happen in your life? And, you know, a few days before I was just chilling on the beach in Felaraki. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect like I said, dad training, eh? <laughs> it's, it's like crazy to even think about it. Produced by Paul Daniels at pauldaniels.tv.